Uh, but this morning, as you might have noticed, we are in the book of Isaiah, chapter 44. Uh, I was drawn to this particular passage uh, precisely because of a certain quote by a certain German, or excuse me, Genevan reformer, John Calvin. You may know John Calvin, you may be familiar with some of his writings, but he is uh, somewhat famous for stating that the heart of man, as he says in his great work, The Institutes, is a perpetual forge of idols. Now that remark has also been translated as in some more, we could say, vernacular English, that the, man's, that the heart of man is an idol factory. It makes, I think, for a very sobering and very striking image, this image of mankind and his heart in its fallen state sees himself operating, we might imagine, this sort of 24-7 industrial assembly line of his heart. And the only things that are coming out of this assembly line that mankind operates are idols. He churns them out. He forges one idol after another, one thing after another, in which he seeks to hope, uh, find hope and meaning and significance in all of those things that we look for, and we always find ourselves coming up short. This is, uh, I would say, the image that John Calvin is seeking to portray with that quote, with that reminder. And it's a devastating portrait, I find. It sees the heart of man acting as both, we could say, the foreman and the line worker in this very dismal idol, idol factory. One that never closes its doors, never shuts down operations, and as soon as one thing goes out of fashion, there will be another idol to follow it. And, as you might imagine, this image is staggering, but it, of course, didn't originate with Calvin. It originated right here. <laughs> Right here in the book of Isaiah chapter 44, where in these 10 verses, that, well, the 10 verses that I hope to really draw your attention to this morning, he exposes this idolatrous heart of mankind. Specifically here, the prophet Isaiah does this in the hearts of the people of Israel. If you notice, verses 9 down through 20, the prophet Isaiah gives what I'm going to call the parable of the blacksmith and the carpenter. Because essentially what he does is he uses these two different craftsmen to sort of illustrate the, the vanity, as he uses that word here, the folly, and we might even say the utter worthlessness of the idols and the gods that we make. His premise is verse 9 of uh, Isaiah 44. This is, we might say, his thesis of this entire chapter, but especially of this, chap of this passage. He says, they that make a graven image are all of them vanity. And their delectable things shall not profit. And they are their own witnesses. They see not, nor know that they, that they may be ashamed. We might render his words here that everyone who seeks to make a graven image are themselves worthless forgers, forging worthless things. That's essentially what he is stating in this opening sort of verse of this particular section. They're operating in this factory and they are making for themselves, as he says, delectable things, precious things, desirable things. They're putting a lot of stock and a lot of value in these graven images that they are making. But he says, they shall not profit. They're empty. 
These idols and the idol makers themselves, as Isaiah is here testifying, are witnesses to their own folly. They are witnesses to their own shame. They're bowing before these molten gods that they have made. And therefore, as he says in verses 10 and 11, they are just a company of fools. Notice, who have formed a god or molten a graven image that is profitable for nothing. Behold, all his fellows shall be ashamed. And the workmen, they are of men. Let them all be gathered together. Let them stand up. Yet they shall fear and they shall be ashamed together. Again, this is a striking portrait. A striking portrait of everyone who has ever, I would say, walked the face of this earth. Because even if we could say you don't worship the God of this Bible, you worship something. Our hearts are made for worship. They're made to serve something greater, a greater purpose, we might say. Everyone worships something. It's just a matter of what that worshiping uh, image or what that object is that we worship. And we might say in the words of Calvin and actually more specifically the words of Isaiah, we are all idol makers. And yet, as Isaiah is here saying, They are ashamed and they don't even know it. They are blind to their own folly and they don't even know it. They are attesting and they're witnessing to their own madness by bowing down before these idols that they have made. And as he says here in the verse 11 has all of these uh, sort of pictures, word pictures we might say that make us think of the end times. And we might say that in the final analysis that these workmen, they will all be gathered together. They will all be ashamed together. Because as they've set out to craft a God for themselves, all that they have just crafted is their own condemnation. You see, in the, in the end of all things, these who, as he says here, set out to forge their own gods will find that all they have made is an everlasting seal on their eternal separation from the one true God. That's the devastating image from this particular passage. And I have to step back because Isaiah is talking about Israel. He's using these words as striking as they are, as formidable as they are. And he's saying, this is you, Israel. This is your fate. You, as you are in your exile, in your outcast state, you have chosen to worship idols. You have chosen to fall down before puny little graven images and fall prostrate before them instead of before the king of kings. See, Isaiah is is heightening their disregard for the one true God by showing them just the folly and and the puny nature of their little idols. And then to further articulate this, this is where you get into the the parable, we might say. To articulate this, this, this shame of idolatry that is so evident in Israel's nation and in their hearts, we might say. Also, he uses these two illustrations starting in verse 12. He talks about the blacksmith. Notice what he says. The smith, or the blacksmith, with the tongs, both worketh in the coals, and fashion it with hammers, and worketh it with the strength of his arms. Yea, he is hungry, and his strength faileth. He drinketh no water, and is faint. 
here. He's drawing sort of this emphasis on the effort of the blacksmith. He has this molten metal that he is working with. You can hear Isaiah's words. He's emphasizing all of the effort and the strength and the endurance and all of that. that He's pouring into that liquid metal that he's fashioning. You can hear it. He's working and he's, and he's fashioning. And as he says, <clears throat> he's working with the strength of his arms. And as he says, with, with tongs and coals and, and hammers, we might get this image of this, this blood and sweat and tears that he's pouring into this. He's making a graven image for himself, a God of his own making. And he's pouring all of himself into it. It's grueling work. I don't know if you've ever seen, but one of my favorite things to see and watch is the art of glass blowing. Have you ever seen someone do that firsthand? There's a little booth at the um, at the the amusement park in Tennessee, Dollywood, and they had a guy doing that live, and it was so fascinating to watch someone do that. It is truly an art form. There was a show on the streaming site Netflix called Blown Away. Have you ever heard of this show before? Maybe no one has, but one person. Two people. Uh, if you've watched it, it's really fascinating. It is literally competitive glass blowing, which is a pretty cool thing. But we've watched it, Natalie and I have. And what is so interesting to me is just literally how grueling it is. They're in these, uh, near these uh, extremely hot flames, blowing on glass and shaping it into these beautiful art statues and structures. And they come out of those, uh, those places, those furnaces, literally, and they are just drenched in sweat. They are drenched, we might say, in the evidence of their own effort. And I, I picture that here. With this blacksmith pouring over this liquid metal that he's working and fashioning and shaping and beating and putting back into the flames and bringing it back out and shaping again. He's pouring everything that he is and has into this idea that he can craft for himself a God. You see the height of this folly. He's exhausting himself, this blacksmith is. In this attempt to forge for himself something of value, something of lasting worth, as we might say, as Isaiah says, some, some delectable thing. He's pouring all of himself in it. And in his pride, he is thinking that he can. He can fashion himself a God. He can make for himself an icon of strength that he can look to. And yet the whole folly of this little parable of the blacksmith is that he himself has strength that fails. Notice, he's working it, as it says, with the strength of his arms. Yea, he is hungry, and his strength faileth. He faints. He falls victim to his own limits, this blacksmith does. He himself is not one who can create something of lasting endurance. The durability of the object that he makes can only match his own. Which is to say that you and I cannot exceed our own limits. And anything therefore we make is bound by our own limitations and weaknesses. So therefore from this story of the blacksmith we can say this. It's the height of foolishness to assume that we who are finite can forge something that is infinite. 
This is the nature of a God. You're looking for something that can fill the infinite void that you have in your heart and soul. As Solomon talks about in Ecclesiastes, that we are born with the world in our hearts. Eternity in our souls. And man says, I can fill that on my own. The blacksmith says, I can make something that can do all that for me. I can make something of my own accord, of my own strength. And yet, uh, we are just like this blacksmith. We waste untold amounts of energy and effort making our own idols, we could say, and seeking out molten gods that we believe will fill us and satisfy us. And the key point is this, to remember, yes, Maybe you don't have an iron statue sitting in the corner of your home. It's not sitting there and you don't pay homage to it every morning. But maybe, maybe just maybe our idols are the metal devices that we carry in our pockets. Or maybe our idols are the the green pieces of paper that we live for and we strive for and we exert ourselves for every single week. Or maybe our idols are those rungs of success that we long to climb and we're ever striving to keep going upward and upward and keep getting more and more successful. Or maybe our idol is our incessant need to be right and we always have to know that we have come out on top. Or maybe our idol is our politics or our need for comfort. There are idols that we serve all around us. We in our hearts and our sinful natures are idol factories. It's not just molten gods. It's the things we bound down to that we, that we circle our lives around. Sometimes I'm afraid that we're just like this blacksmith. I know I am. I know my heart is an idol factory. And often I have to take a step back and realize I've been pouring my own labor into this thing that I think will fill me when God has a better offer on the table. And yet all of our efforts, and like just like this blacksmith, they're worthless. They're vain. Because like him, he seeks to fashion something that will fill him and he still ends up empty. He seeks to find something that will satisfy him and he is still thirsty. He is still fainting. And just like the blacksmith, we never learn. Because once we fashion an idol and we found that it doesn't meet up our standards, that it doesn't really do what we think it's going to do, we set out and we craft another one. We're idol factory workers. If this doesn't fill us, that will. That's the book of Ecclesiastes in two seconds. <laughs> if this will not fill me, this will fill me. Solomon goes through all of those different avenues and all of those different vats of satisfaction and peace and longing and hope. And he finds all of them empty. All of them, as he says, vanity. And I think such is what this blacksmith found. That even though he was fashioning something with the strength of his arms, he couldn't find or fashion anything that was filling Indeed, I would say, if you are seeking that, if you're seeking something uh, lasting and fulfilling out of your own strength, out of your own accord, it's like trying to fill up a bucket of water with a sieve. It'll never work. It'll never, ever work. 
And that's what this blacksmith found. No matter how hard he tried, how much effort he put forth, it was empty. And yet Isaiah sees that that might not be enough. That might not be enough to stir the heart of Israel back to a right worship of Jehovah. So he offers up another illustration that's a little bit extended. And I love its extended nature and details. Because we have the parable of the blacksmith. And here's the parable, we might say, of the carpenter. Notice verse 13. The carpenter stretcheth out his rule. He marketh it out with a line. He fitteth it with planes. And he marketh it out with a compass. And maketh it after the figure of a man. According to the beauty of a man. That it may remain in the house. We see here this carpenter. And this detailed account of this meticulous care that he has in making this graven image. And the key point of this whole thing is this graven image, as he says, is after the figure of a man. According to the beauty of man. All of its beauty and limitations is confined right there. It's not after something eternal or infinite. It's after something that only he knows We see this carpenter nevertheless measuring and marking. He's a good carpenter. He's measuring twice and cutting once. He's doing everything according to the book. Checking every minute detail. He's doing everything he can. Planning even the smallest of cuts. And then we find that he's happy with his plans. He has his his diagram all ordered out to the minutest detail. And he goes out and he goes into the forest and starts hewing down some trees. Verse 14, he heweth him down cedars and taketh the cypress and the oak, which he strengtheneth for himself among the trees of the forest. He planteth an ash and the rain doth nourish it. He goes out, he collects all of this timber. And here is where the ridiculous knowledge and the ridiculous logic of this carpenter is fully displayed. Watch what happens. He gathers all of that timber. Verse 15, then shall it be for a man to burn. For he will take thereof and warm himself, yea, he kindleth it and baketh bread, yea, he maketh a god and worshipeth it, he maketh it a graven image and falleth down thereto, he burneth part thereof in the fire, with part thereof he eateth flesh, he roasteth roast and is satisfied, yea, he warmeth himself and saith, aha, I am warm, I have seen the fire, and notice, the residue thereof, He maketh a God. Even his graven image. He falleth down unto it and worshipeth it. And prayeth unto it. And saith deliver me. For thou art my God. You see the heights of the folly of this carpenter. He has this stockpile of lumber. And he uses some to warm himself. To make a fire. To nourish himself. To satisfy himself. And then with the remainder. Which is literally what that word residue means. With the remainder. The leftovers. He makes a God to worship and pray to for deliverance. If you haven't gotten the point. Isaiah makes it very clear for us in in verses 18 and 19. Notice. They have not known. Nor understood, for he hath shut their eyes, that they cannot see in their hearts, that they cannot understand. And none considereth in his heart, neither is there knowledge nor understanding to say, I have burned part of it in the fire. Yea, also I have baked bread upon the coals thereof. I have roasted flesh and eaten it. And I shall, and shall I make the residue thereof an abomination? 
Shall I fall down to the stock of a tree? <laughs> you see, the carpenter has cut down some of that forest and he's used some to roast some nice juicy lamb chops. <laughs> and then with the leftovers, he falls down and worships and prays for deliverance as though that hunk of wood could deliver his eternal soul. Same forest, same wood, same uh, uh, sort of source for all of this. Some is used for kindling, some is used for worshiping. The elements did not change. Isaiah is drawing us to that. The elements did not change. It's the same wood, and he's praying to it. Praying to a lifeless hunk of wood. You're praying to a log, Isaiah, I imagine him saying. There's no deliverance there. There's no deliverance in that log. You can't pray to it and expect it to come through for you. And you see Isaiah's point. The gods that we make, the gods that we serve, the ones that we think will fill and bring us what we so desperately desire are as good as us praying to a hunk of wood. You see, in these parables, we are made to see just that. How desperate, how depraved, how deceived man's heart is. Rather than find delight in the one true God, the God who made him, who spoke him into existence, as Isaiah says, he would rather feed on ashes. Look at verse 20, it's devastating. He feedeth on ashes. A deceived heart hath turned him aside that he cannot deliver his soul, nor say, is there not a lie in my right hand? He cannot even see his own folly. He can't even notice his own shame. He can't even see how horribly depraved and desperate and deceived he is. And I would say, just like the carpenter, our gods are nothing but ash. We make them. We go to those sources of meaning and hope and significance. We go to them for all that we long for. We go to them to fill us. We go to them to satisfy us, to give us peace. And yet, ash is still just ash. They cannot nourish. They cannot satisfy. And the sad part is, many times we're okay with that. We're quite content, I feel like, sometimes with our ashes. We're okay with the gods that we make. Because the one true God means I have to give up this. Means I have to do that. It means you have to submit to someone higher and truer. And my friends, there is no more freeing thing than that right there. Than the confession that you can't even make a God, you can't even make anything to fill you, that you are totally dependent upon someone else, someone higher and truer and better. That's what worship is. It's putting us in our place. 
Putting us on our knees. Showing us that we cannot do those things for ourselves that we so desperately long for. We cannot give our soul satisfaction. We cannot give our soul peace. We cannot give our mind rest from all of the ills and ails and that all come about us. There is only one who can do that. It's the one before whom we ought to rightly submit. The one true God, Jehovah. The only deliverer. It's sad, I think, that we are okay, though, with our idols. We're happy with this ash and the mud that we play in. We're far too easily pleased, I would say. In fact, that's what C.S. Lewis says. In one of his essays in C.S. Lewis's book, The Weight of Glory, he says this, which I think is so fitting for this particular section. Lewis says, quote, We are half-hearted creatures, Fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. We're like, an ind- we're like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. And Lewis's portrayal here, he's using this holiday at the sea, a vacation at the coast. As sort of a poetic metaphor for the offer on the table from God himself. The gospel, the good news here is offered. And yet we are quite content, quite pleased with making mud pies in the slum, according to Lewis. (laughs) You see, this is the folly of our idol making. The religion that we have, the religion of idol gods, is nothing but a religion of soot and stupidity. It's a religion of so much lesser gods. It's a religion of ash and abscessed comfort. And yet, as Lewis here hints at, there's a better offer. There's a better promise. There's a better word that has already come to you. As Lewis Explains this an all expense vacation at the house, at a house by the sea, or as Isaiah says, it's the consummate transformation of the desert into an oasis. Look at verse 3 of the same chapter. For I, Yahweh is speaking. For I will pour water upon him that is thirsty and floods upon the dry ground. I will pour my spirit upon thy seed and my blessing upon thine offspring. And they shall spring up as among the grass, as willows by the watercourses. This is his offer. This is his promise. I'm the one true God. I can give you what you seek. And again, remember, Israel at this time, stepping back into, we might say, historical context. Israel is under the dominion of Babylon at this particular moment. They are exiles. They are outcasts. They are enduring decades of divine judgment. Brought on by themselves, yes. Precisely because they've resorted to worshiping iron and wood, which has stirred God to his core to give them over to such curses and reproaches. Notice chapter 43, the last two verses. Chapter 43, verse 27. Thy first father hath sinned, and thy teachers have transgressed against me. Therefore I have profaned the princes of the sanctuary, and have given Jacob to the curse, and Israel to reproaches. 
You've brought this on yourselves. And yet, despite all that, despite this horrible and deplorable idol-making religion that Israel has given themselves over to, what does God say? Look at verse 1. Yet now hear, O Jacob, my servant, and Israel whom I have chosen, Thus saith the Lord that made thee and formed thee from the womb, which will help thee. Fear not, O Jacob, my servant, and thou, O Jeshurun, whom I have chosen. For I will pour water upon him that is thirsty and floods upon the dry ground. The same God who is allowing the season of judgment is here declaring and showing and he's demonstrating to all who could see and hear that he is the same God who assures them of restoration, who assures them of deliverance. I'm the one who made you. I'm the one who chose you. I'm the one who formed you into where you are right now. And I'm the only one that can give you renewal. I'm the only one that can rescue you from your idol-making pits of hell. And the full effect of this is seen in verse 22 of the same chapter. Jump down there. Notice, I, again, Yahweh speaking, I have blotted out as a thick cloud thy transgressions. And as a cloud thy sins. Return unto me, for I have redeemed me. You see, God's spirit is like the wind, we might say, who can drive away even the thickest of clouds. And he can make sure that this cloud of transgression is wiped away and it is erased. And so does this Prophecy say of Israel's transgressions. Yes, even their transgression of transgressing against God himself by making idols. God says, I'm going to wipe that out. You see, the Israelites could be confident in this message. That Isaiah is bringing them. They could be confident when God says to them, return unto me. Because of what God has promised them. You see, perhaps a more grammatically correct way of phrasing in verse 22 might be this. I have redeemed thee, so return unto me. Because that's the effect of the verse. My redemption is sure. It is absolutely sure. You can be sure of it. So return. You see, this is the amazing message of the Bible. Is the offer of forgiveness which precedes the call to repentance. Christ died for the whole world before anyone bowed in repentance unto him. He secures everyone's forgiveness. That way when they come to him in repentance, owning their sin and pouring it out before their father, he can say, you are forgiven. Because they already were. God forgave them in Christ. And this is the offer of the gospel. And this is the the stupidity of trying to pretend that we can be your own gods. You're literally shoving away something that is absolutely certain. Those who go into hell not uh, believing in the forgiveness of sins. Devastate God. 
because of what his son did on their behalf. There's not a sinner who went to hell that God did not love. That I would say that he did not die for. And it's a tragedy. It's a travesty. That in man's desperation and depravity, he says no. Because like Israel, Christ has offered this redemption to all who would come to him and repent and believe. This is an invitation. Isaiah is giving them, come unto the Father. He's waiting. Return unto him. He has open arms ready for you. This is God's posture to the world. This is God's posture to you and to me, to every single idol maker. He says, come and return. I'm waiting for you. You see, this is, uh, I, I just love this particular truth. Because it makes your repentance not something that you hope that God will forgive you based on how good and how qualifying your prayer of repentance is. It doesn't even matter how long it is. Like the, like, like the publican in Luke chapter 18, I am the chief of sinners. Christ, save me. I am the chief of sinners. God, I believe, I repent. There's nothing fancy, there's nothing flowery because God's forgiveness is sure. Not because of how good we are, but because of his son taking our place and securing our redemption. Therefore, Israel could be confident. They could be sure that God would not greet them like a curmudgeonly God who is seeking to discipline them. And you better not go running out again. He greets them like the father of the prodigal. His repentance speech, if you remember Luke chapter 15, he doesn't even get it out. He doesn't even get to say it. He's practiced and practiced. He finally realizes how silly his idol gods were. He could go make his own living and he, he finds that he's wasted it. And he's come to his senses, yes. He says in his mind, I'm going to pray that God will, that, that my father will just accept me as just one of his hired hands. I don't deserve anything less. And before he can even get the words out, his dad says, come, let's make a feast. Give him my robe, give him my sandals, give him a ring. He is my son. He was lost and is now found. Forgiveness precedes repentance and assures us that our God is waiting with open arms to welcome all those who would come to him and that lay their idols down. That's this God. He's waiting with open arms. And my friends, his posture has not changed. His posture has not changed even though we may forget him. Look at verse 21. Remember these, O Jacob, in Israel. For thou art my servant. I have formed thee. Thou art my servant, O Israel. Thou shalt not be forgotten of me. Israel forgot their God. And Israel's God says, I will never forget you. They may have gone into some very dark roads of idol worship and idol making. And yet he says to them, I'm never going to forget 
that you are my people. I have chosen you. I have chosen you. You see, this posture of God towards Israel, towards us, is such that he waits with open arms for every blacksmith and every carpenter and every idol worshiper to realize their folly and return to him. This one, the only true God, the only true deliverer of our souls. And this is the point. Again, notice the verses that were read at the beginning. Verse 6. Thus saith the Lord. The king of Israel and his redeemer, the Lord of hosts. I am the first and I am the last. And beside me there is no God. And who as I shall call and shall declare it and set it in order for me. Since I am appointed the ancient ancient people and the things that are coming and shall come. Let them show unto them. Fear ye not. Neither be afraid. Have I not told thee from that time and have I declared it? Ye are even my witnesses. Is there a God beside me? Yea, there is no God. I know not any. God are gods of idol and wood or, or success or, or prestige or prominence or anything that you could fill in the blank are nothing compared to this God. They're nothing compared to this Yahweh, the only true God who actually comes through on all of his promises. Who actually fulfills his word. He has no parallel. He has no equal. He is before all things. And as he says here. He's above all things. And the greatest truth of all. Is that that God. He says fear not. Again it goes back. You don't have to be afraid. When you're praying your prayer of repentance. Because God says. I am waiting for you. Return to me. And he says don't fear. I don't have time. I'd love to go to how many other places it talks about that. Even right around this verse. Chapter 41, chapter 43. All over Isaiah. All over the Bible. God is saying to his people. Do not fear. And that's the the paradox, isn't it? I know in my soul. Because of how black with sin it is. I have every reason to fear this God. I have every reason to be afraid and to be ashamed of all the things that I've said and done and thought. And yet God says to me, fear not, I have redeemed you. My friends, there has never been a more open and free invitation to lay your idols down than this passage right here. We cling to our gods because we think we have security in them. And God says, you have nothing in the way of security. You have nothing in the way of peace. Nothing in the way of fulfillment. Nothing in the way of everlasting comfort. I can give it to you because I am the one who made you. And the one who saved you. And the one who will glorify you. This declaration... That's made to Israel is made to you this morning. Let me ask you Are you ready to be done playing in the mud? Are you ready to be to be done, as he says here, feeding on ashes? Are you ready to lay your idols down? Only you can say what those are. I'm I'm not the Holy Spirit. You know that, that, that there's 
one, perhaps many things, that you found your life encompassed about. And that God is just a part of it. If God is in a cubby within your life, you have an idol. If your religion is over here in its nightly little space and it doesn't infiltrate and permeate all the other little spaces of your life, you have an idol. And God is giving here the invitation. Lay your idols down. There is a way better offer. C.S. Lewis says it's a vacation by the sea. Here it's, it's promised the transformation of the desert into an oasis. And I would say the promise of the Bible is eternal life. It's the peace and comfort that only God can give. It's waiting for you. Christ's nailed, scarred hands are the open arms of the Father saying, Come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Rest from your idol making. Rest from your molten God manufacturing. Rest from trying to find in a million and one different things what God alone can give you. Let us bow our heads and close our eyes.